Part two, chapter six of Garcia Marino by Augustine Berth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. The Taking of Guayaquil, eighteen sixty. The admiration for Garcia Marino went on increasing, and in the same degree the hatred against Franco, who had just signed a treaty with Peru, which ceded a portion of Ecuador to the Peruvians, on condition that the latter should assist Franco in the defense of Guayaquil. The announcement of this infamous bargain was received with indignation by the whole country. A rich proprietor offered all his property to the Quito treasury to save the honor of his nation. Indignant protests were sent in from every province, and masses of young men came forward as volunteers to join the army. Before, however, risking this last appeal to arms, Garcia Moreno made another effort to save the blood of his people, and wrote a beautiful letter to Franco, suggesting that to avoid the horrible civil war in which they were engaged, and to defeat the schemes of the common enemy, both he and Franco should resign their commands and retire into exile for a time, while the province of Guayaquil would join those of the interior in submitting to the provincial government at Quito. He concluded his letter with these words. If you accept this proposal, which would ensure the integrity of our territory without wounding your honor, I will instantly send in my own resignation and leave the country. It would be with a bad grace that I should ask such a sacrifice at your hands if I were not ready to set you the example. Instead of being struck at this generous and patriotic proposal, Franco was furious at the very idea of abandoning the presidency which he had so long coveted. He burst into the vilest abuse of Garcia Moreno, and even imprisoned the messenger who brought him the letter. As a last resource, Garcia Moreno addressed himself to the agents of the diplomatic corps, imploring their mediation, showing how the unhappy treaty entered into by Franco with Peru had widened the breach between Guayaquil and the provincial government of Quito, which never could consent to a measure so contrary to the rights, interests, and honor of the people of Ecuador that there was no alternative between the abdication of Franco or a war of extermination, while he renewed the proposal he had already made, to retire into voluntary exile if Franco would do the same. He proposed also the election of a new chief of the state, chosen by both governments, adding, The country does not need any particular man, and the provincial government should be above the interests of party or personal ambition. This wonderful instance of self-abnegation and patriotism induced the diplomatic body to do their utmost to bring about a reconciliation which should avert the horrors of civil war. But Franco resisted all their efforts, and even demanded the expulsion of Garcia Moreno, whom he declared to be the author of all the evils which had fallen on Ecuador. On the 1st of May, the glorious anniversary of the Quito Revolution, his rage knew no bounds. From Babahoyo, Manabi, and other towns on the sea coast came petitions for union with the provisional government, together with a number of volunteers for Garcia's army. Franco tracked them with the greatest cruelty and chained them in his barracks, where many died under the lash. The noble initiative of the provisional government produced, however, a contrary effect on Castilla, who had sense enough to feel the moral victory which Garcia Marina had gained, not only among the people of Ecuador, but with the whole diplomatic body. Feeling that he was altogether in a false position, he gave orders to his troops to evacuate Guayaquil and return to Peru. He himself remained with a small portion of the squadron to watch the course of events, and intervene with his cannons, if needful, to save the treaty of the 25th of January. The situation began to clear itself, and the forces of the two parties were becoming more equal, when Garcia Marina received a reinforcement, as precious as it was unexpected, by arrival in the camp of Guaranda, 
of old General Flores. After fifteen years of exile, the ex-president had settled in Peru with the consent of Castilla. The latter had summoned him to assist Franco in the war against Ecuador, and, on his indignant refusal, had driven him from Peru. Flores, in this moment of danger to his country, forgot his past misfortunes and resentments. Listening only to the voice of honor, he wrote to Garcia Moreno, In the difficult circumstances in which you are placed, let me know if I can be of any use to you. If so, I am at your orders. Garcia Moreno, forgetting all past and present rivalries, hastened to reply, Come immediately and be our general-in-chief. A few days later, these two political adversaries, united in the same patriotic feelings, embraced one another in face of the whole army, wild with joy and enthusiasm. Flores arrived at the very moment when his military talents and experience were most needed. A month later, Franco decided to steam up the river Guayas with his soldiers and cannons and establish himself at Babahoya, intending from thence to attack the provinces of the interior. The two chiefs at once decided that they would not give him time to climb the Cordilleras, but would meet him in the plain, where the population were groaning under his heavy yoke. But first, Garcia Marina put forth two brilliant proclamations, one to the inhabitants of Guayaquil and one to his army, which acted as an electric shock upon them both and filled his soldiers with confidence and courage. Our readers will understand the difficulties of this march on Guayaquil if they remember the configuration of the country which the army had to traverse. On leaving Guaranda, they were first met by the abrupt and precipitous slopes of the Cordilleras, and would have to march through narrow and dangerous paths, which in some places were almost impracticable, and to drag after them all their baggage, ammunition, and artillery. When they had at last reached the plain, they would have to encounter Franco's army, superior not only in numbers, but in artillery and cavalry. If, beyond their hopes, they were victorious, Franco would only have to get on board his ships and return to Guayaquil, which they would then have regularly to besiege. But the military genius of Flores and the invincible courage of Garcia Marino triumphed over all these difficulties. Their only chance was in taking the enemy by surprise, avoiding a pitched battle, and only attacking when circumstances rendered it absolutely necessary. The enemy was divided into two corps, of which one, under Franco, occupied Babahoyo, a town situated at the foot of the Cordilleras, and connected by the river with Guayaquil. The other, under General Leon, occupied Catamaras, a village on the road to Ventanas, to the right of the river. To defeat this combination, Flores determined to turn the flank of Franco's army by attacking him in the rear, and that without giving the alert to General Leon. In order to mask his plan, he sent off a division to Belovan, near Babahoyo, where under cover of this false attack, the main body of the army, by forced marches and unknown paths, crossed the mountains and arrived at Ventanas. On the 5th of August, at 6 o'clock in the evening, the greater portion had arrived safely, but in spite of incredible fatigues, they were obliged to go on at dead of night, and in complete silence, so as not to be detected by General Leon, whose camp was close by. Luckily, all the peasantry were devoted to Garcia Marino, and gave him the most minute and accurate information as to the movements of the enemy. As guides and even as sappers, they opened fresh paths across the forest with their axes when the ordinary road became dangerous. The troops marched in that way for sixteen mortal hours before reaching Bebohoyo. Their movements were, however, so rapid and so secret that they arrived without having fired off a single cartridge. At nine o'clock they attacked the town. 
Utterly taken by surprise, Franco and his soldiers could not resist the impetuous charge of the Quito troops. Still, the artillery poured a destructive fire upon them from their batteries, until Flores ordered the cavalry to change the artillerymen, who were cut down while still clinging to their guns. After that, the rout became general, and Franco, wounded in the shoulder, escaped with difficulty on board a ship to hide his defeat at Guayaquil. After three hours fighting, Garcia Moreno accordingly found himself master of Babahoyo, where a large number of officers and soldiers with cannons, guns, and ammunition, besides the printing press and salt mines of the government, fell into his hands. He wrote after this victory to the provisional government, I have kept my word, and hope soon to be able to announce to you the end of this campaign, which has been visibly blessed by God. Then, with that forgetfulness of self, of which only great men are capable, he added, we owe these triumphs mainly to the genius of our general-in-chief, and to the extraordinary military virtues and endurance of our officers and soldiers. The taking of Babahoyo had placed General Leon in a most critical position. He tried to escape by Zamboradan, hoping there to embark his troops and rejoin Franco at Guayaquil. But Flores, who guessed his movements, hastened to Baca Corvina, in front of Zamboradan, with cannon and artillery, to sink his ships if he attempted to escape by the river. General Leon was finally obliged to traverse the woods and marshes on foot before he could rejoin his chief, who was preparing a desperate last resistance at Guayaquil. As all the provinces had declared in favor of Garcia Moreno, Franco determined, together with Castilla, to declare Guayaquil a free town, apart from the rest of Ecuador, and under the protectorate of Peru. Such was the respect paid by these Democrats to the national will. It took a whole month for Garcia Moreno's army to arrive at the city and establish their camp at Mapasingue. There he and Flores consulted as to the last dispositions to be taken before making the terrible assault. Guayaquil was defended on that side by a strongly fortified hill, bristling with batteries, which made it virtually impregnable. To the right of this natural fortress flows the river Guayas, which surrounds the town on that side, and the waters of which flow into the sea. To the left is what is called the Estero Salado, a kind of marsh planted with great mangrove trees, an arm of the sea, in fact, which completely isolates Guayaquil and the fine plain which surrounds it. Only by stratagem, therefore, could such a place be taken. For several days Flores ostensibly prepared a regular assault of the hill and the fort which adjoined the Estero Salado, while Franco, on his side, disposed his batteries so as to annihilate them on the first attack. On the 22nd of September, in the evening, every one went to rest, convinced that the assault would be made on the morrow. But in the middle of the night, while the fires brightened up the camp as usual, the whole of Flores's army, save a regiment of lancers and a company of artillerymen, who were left to defend the general's headquarters in case of attack, moved off to the borders of the fatal marsh, determined to cross it, and fall upon Guayaquil from the only side where Franco would never expect them as the wildest imagination could never conceive that any soldiers would venture to cross this terrible swamp with cannons and artillery. After two hours' march, in perfect silence, the exhausted men threw themselves down for a little rest before affronting the dangers of the Estero Salado. This arm of the sea is divided into three parts. The first is a slimy, muddy marsh covered with mangroves, whose roots rise several yards above the soil, interlaced like a coat of mail, and forming an impenetrable hedge for five or six hundred yards. Beyond this, the marsh is intersected by a deep canal, thirty meters in width, 
which is called the Rio Salado. After that, the marsh begins again with the forests of mangroves up to the savannah. This was the threefold barrier which the troops had to cross before reaching Guayaquil. The general-in-chief, with some sharpshooters, was examining the passage when a fusillade from Salado proved that they were watched. Rushing forward to reconnoitre the enemy, they found that the shots came from some scouts, who, the instant they found their fire returned, took to their boats and made for the sea. The Rio being thus forced, the sharpshooters crossed it in barges and on rafts and established themselves on the opposite bank to protect the arduous passage of the troops, the cannon being likewise placed in position for the same purpose. Then began the struggle, the soldiers clinging to the branches of the mangroves, covered with sticky mud and struggling for their lives amidst the roots and slime. Several battalions had crossed in safety, when a sharp fusillade burst forth from the Liza fort, and a detachment of the enemy were seen hurrying forward to bar the passage. Flores had foreseen this probability, and instantly, by his orders, twenty trumpets from the sharpshooters, sounding a charge as if the whole army were advancing. Deceived by this clever ruse, the enemy, who were only two hundred strong, hastily retreated. In the meantime, the artillery had arrived on the banks of the terrible marsh, with their guns and gun carriages, their shells and ammunition. Seeing their chief start forward, first with a powder cask weighing fifty kilos, the men followed him with an eagerness equal to his own. It is impossible to give an adequate idea of what their toil was for those eight hours, during which they had to drag over their cannon and ammunition by sheer strength and pluck against such fearful obstacles. At last, covered with slime from head to foot, with bleeding legs and feet, their uniforms and rags streaming with perspiration and dying of thirst, these poor fellows arrived on the plain with all their artillery amidst the cheers of the whole army. Towards evening, when they had rested a little, Garcia Moreno and Flores formed them in a vast quadrilateral, extending all across the plain, and going up and down the ranks, gave them their last instructions. At eleven o'clock the clarion sounded the charge, that is, victory or death, for there was no escape if they were defeated, with Franco's cannons before, and the fearful marsh behind them. Soldiers and officers had but one thought, to defeat the rebels, or sell their lives dearly. At that instant, Franco's batteries thundered forth, together with the cannons of the Peruvian steamer, Tambez. Garcia Moreno and his men answered by the cry of, Hurrah for Ecuador, and charged the advance guard of the enemy with such fury that they fell back in great disorder, and were only brought again to the charge by a fresh attack from the battalion of Colonel Vitamilla. Commandant Barita succeeded at the same moment in dispersing a strong battalion of artillery and taking their guns. In the meantime, Flores's cannon swept across the plain, and with such effect that the Guayaquil troops, who never imagined that any cannon could cross the Salado, retired in disorder behind the batteries on the hill, abandoning their barrack and their park of artillery. The forts on the heights still held out. Garcia Marino and Flores gave the signal of a general attack at four o'clock. Colonel Ventimilla, under a terrible fire, carried the fortifications of Ligua by assault and took possession of the batteries. Towards six o'clock, the general-in-chief, surrounded by a feeble escort, approached the Cerro entrenchments to entreat the enemy not to prolong a useless resistance, when a furious mulatto, brandishing his lance, threw himself on the speaker. Flores had barely a second in which to turn and fly, being followed by a shower of balls from which he only escaped by miracle. 
a few minutes after he came back at the head of the avengers of quito as his picked band were called who dashed up the parapet killed the artillerymen and spiked their guns so that they became masters not only of cerro but of all the batteries from legua to the military hospital from that instant the enemy fled in the greatest confusion through the streets of the city hiding when they could in the houses from whence they fired on the conquerors at nine o'clock the few survivors of this terrible bloody struggle were all made prisoners and franco flying from his conquerors on board a peruvian ship left behind him four hundred men the greater part of his officers twenty-six pieces of artillery and all his arms and ammunition after this brilliant victory garcia marina addressed his comrades as follows masters of the stronghold where the savage chief of the taras has so long taken refuge you have crowned yourselves with laurels which will not fade the passage of the salado with your cannons and the fights which have assured our triumph will ever remain as memorable and heroic facts in the military history of nations the taking of guayaquil which put an end to a fifteen-month struggle was hailed with acclamations of joy throughout ecuador to give extra significance to this event and perpetuate its remembrance garcia marina willed that the national flag which franco had so dishonored should be changed this flag he wrote in a solemn decree which has been stained by a chief unworthy of the name must give place to the old one dyed with the blood of our bravest men the glory of which is immaculate from to-day the noble old colombian flag shall become once more the banner of the republic but as an earnest and devout christian garcia marina did not forget the victory must be attributed less to man's genius than to the intervention of god's providence the taking of guayaquil having taken place on september twenty fourth eighteen sixty the feast of our lady of mercy he decreed that in gratitude to the mother of our divine redeemer and to deserve her assistance in future the army of the republic should be placed henceforth under the special protection of our lady of mercy and that at each anniversary both the government and the army should assist officially at the great solemnities of the church in truth our lady of mercy the redemptress of captives had helped him to deliver his people from men more to be feared than the saracens that is the agents of socialism and revolution End of part two, chapter six